Welcome to Union Chapel. It's the season of Lent. It's the uh, 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter, and it's a season of time when we uh, contemplate our faith and the meaning of our faith in the world. And today we are continuing a series we're calling 40 Days of Prayer. We're emphasizing this most important spiritual discipline. And today I want to talk in very practical terms about ways that you can pray on a daily basis. The title of the message is a little sophisticated, perhaps praying in five dimensions, but the five main points in the message today are really an outline for your daily prayer, and I hope it'll be very straightforward and very practical for you in the application. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to our reference, which is found in the book of Romans, New Testament book of Romans, chapter 8. I'm going to read for us verses 14 to 17. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, to honor God's word that way. And so as you're able, thanks for doing that. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church at Rome. And he said, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live again in fear. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Now, now note the phrase. You've been adopted into the family. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. It's a very intimate term. Papa, Daddy, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his sufferings, in his glory. So may God encourage us today. Lots of suffering, apparently. So, <laughs> sorry. Thanks, for, thanks so much. You may be seated. Hey, I have a question for you. How many of you remember the old pop music group called The Fifth Dimension? You're, you're old enough to remember that. The, raise your hand. Keep it up. These are the old people in the room. Look around. So, you remember some of their, their hit tunes like Up, Up, and Away? Remember that one? Yeah? How about Wedding, Wedding Bell Blues? Okay. How about Last Night I Didn't Get to Sleep at All? Yeah, some of that. How about Grazing in the Grass? Uh, how about Stone Soul Picnic? Yeah, remember that? One Less Bell to Answer? Is that, is, that, is that ringing at all? How about this one, Aquarius, let the sun shine in. Okay, yeah, remember that. We could probably all sing that right now, couldn't we? It, it would be weird, but we could do it probably, yeah. The question then is, what in the world is the fifth dimension? It's kind of a curiosity. There are, there are scientists now who actually study uh, dimensional theory and dimensional physics, and it's a fascinating subject. But we all know that we live in a 3D world. If you just uh, go from point A to point B, one line there, that's one dimension. And then if you add a little width to that, one, another line, then you, then you have a second dimension. And if you put a, a dot up above that and, and you, you maybe visualize a pyramid, now you have three dimensions. And of course, we live in a three-dimensional world. As we go through the world, because of our five senses, we actually perceive the world in three dimensions. You, when you look at me, you see a person who has height and width and depth, and so there's dimensionality. When you look at a TV screen, that's only two dimensions, and so you don't get the undulations of a, of a putting green, for example, or the, the real relatively of a, of a mountain scene or whatever, so you have to let your mind kind of imagine reality, when, although you're looking at 2D. You know, a hologram technology is just around the corner. And a hologram, of course, is a projection with lasers and, and other lights that creates an image in 3D. 
so that a hologram perfected looks just like real life. And when the hologram gets perfected, that's when I'm actually going to be preaching as a hologram here for you, and I will get to be somewhere else while I'm preaching as a hologram here. So I said that in the first service, and someone said, yeah, we'll send your check in a hologram too. See how that works. <laughs> oh. So then the question is, is there a fourth dimension? And if there is, some scientists believe that fourth dimensions is maybe linear time. Okay, so you can imagine a fourth dimension that way. Oh, but is there a fifth dimension? And if there is, what does that mean? And so lots of speculation about that and mathematical formulas because at some point, very quickly in dimensional theory, the human mind loses capacity to comprehend it. Now, as Christians, we have a worldview that suggests that there's a natural world, a physical world in 3D, the one we're living in right now, but we also believe that there is an unseen spiritual world. And I would just theorize with you today, just speculate with you, that the unseen world, which I believe is very much real, this is the world of, of heaven, this is the world of angels and maybe demons, a spiritual world. Uh, this, is the, this is the world to which people we know and love when they pass from the earth, when they leave their earth suits behind, they die. And they pass on, this is the phrase we use, they pass on. Well, they pass on to where? They pass on, okay, they pass on to heaven. The Apostle Paul said, I'm absent from my body, present with the Lord. Well, like, where's that? How's that work? And so we, 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 we understand that there's an unseen world. There's a place called heaven. It's a real place, and real people go there. Okay, so how do you comprehend that? Well, in, in the way I perceive the world, it's, it's, it's a real place, but it's just dimensionally different. And it's not that far away. It's just on a different plane where the rules of space and time are different than our world because we live in this 3D material world and that's more of a spiritual dimension. And so it's just as real as our world. It's just different and dimensionally separate from ours. And we can't get there. We can't see it, hear it, so forth. We can't touch it because we're still in this 3D world and are living in our earth suits and we can't go, go that way. So I think heaven is really close. It's not up there. Where's heaven? Well, it's up there. Well, that doesn't really define it well because up to us is like that direction. But if you're on the other side of the planet right now, our up would be there down. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let you think about that. So, so, so up there doesn't really describe where heaven is. And so heaven is not up. It's just there, just there. And I think just beyond where we can reach. People will say, you know, my mother's been dead for 20 years, but occasionally I just feel like she's really close to me. What is that about? What that's about is she's really close to you. It's just there. It's right there. Just dimensionally different. If you can kind of comprehend that. So here's something, here's something that we know about God. God is multidimensional. I want you to write that down. It's the first thing on your outline there. God is a multidimensional God. He's not one-dimensional. He's not two-dimensional. He's not three-dimensional. He will not appear in a hologram. That won't define him. You can't put on 3D glasses and go watch him in a 3D movie and understand God. God is multi-dimensional. The most important thing about prayer is not how much you know about prayer, but how much you know about God. And so we try to understand that God is multi-dimensional. Let me just illustrate that. For example, uh, and this is the next thing on your outline. We see this in God's creation. In God's creation. 
Romans 1.20 says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen in what has been made. So men are without excuse. So in other words, the Bible teaches us that we can understand the nature and character of God by simply observing the created order. I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, what we can, can we learn about God from the created order? Well, we know that he, has, he likes variety. We know that he's organized. We know, we know that he, he, he's creative. We understand that God likes diversity. I mean, just look around the room and you see that God is all about diversity. We know that God is powerful. I mean, the natural world uh, evidences powerful phenomenon all the time. A weather event or some asteroid, you know, penetrates the atmosphere, and, and we just go, whoa, big, powerful things are at work in our universe. And we get the impression then that God is powerful. If I'm walking up a hill and I see a stone that's kind of fallen out of place, I go, well, that's an accident. But if I'm walking up the hill and I see a Rolex watch there making perfect time, ticking away, making perfect time, I go, um, that's not an accident. So, someone designed that thing and put it together in a purposeful way. And that, that's why I can't be an atheist, because I think it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. Uh, atheists have amazing faith. I, I envy the faith of an atheist because uh, you have to believe as an atheist if there's no design, no designer, then the Rolex watch can appear without any prior uh, effort or design, creativity. You just, by accident, you know, you take uh, a certain amount of raw material and you give it enough time, you know, thousands and millions and gazillions of years, and then suddenly, poof, you got a Rolex watch. And I just don't have enough faith for that. I just don't think it's going to happen. Well, you know, the, God didn't create the world. The world started with a big bang. Okay, I've got no problem with a big bang. Start it with a big bang. Fine. But if you have a big bang, then you have to have a big banger. <laughs> Someone had to pull the trigger on that one for it to make sense and have the kind of order that it does. I was present, physically present at the birth of both of our sons, and I just found it the most amazing experience. It's such a miracle. You know, one cell becomes multiple cells, and then this zygote, and then nine months later after gestation, here's this miracle of another human being. I just, I told Beth after the birth of our second son, I said, watching our boys being born it was one of the most spiritual experiences of my life. And she looked at me, got that expression on her face. She said, well, I can tell you it wasn't a spiritual experience for me. <laughs> so I got perspective on that uh, real quickly. But it's amazing. It's a miracle. And you can see God in the creation. Here's another thing that explains or, or illustrates that God is multidimensional, and that is we see it in the incarnation. Now, the incarnation is, of course, it means in the flesh. And so God actually became a man became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. And folks have trouble with incarnation. Well, I just don't believe God would become a man. That doesn't make any sense to me. Listen to me. If God wanted to communicate to an ant, he would become an ant. If he wanted to communicate to cows, he would have become a cow. But God wanted to communicate with human beings. So he became a human being. And he condescended, he descended through the ranks that he had to come through in order to become a man. He put on an earth suit. God became a man. That's why John 1.14 says the word became a human being and lived among us. And we saw his glory. He was full of grace and truth. So the Bible teaches the incarnation. And we see the multi 
dimensional nature of God in that. God was in a spiritual state and actually came into the physical world, the 3D world, and manifested himself that way. So he's not confined by time or by space or dimension. He can just go across them any way he pleases. Revelation 1.4 says, uh, Grace and peace to you from him, meaning Jesus, from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now that pretty much sums it up. Jesus who was and who is and who is to come. That's pretty much everything. And so, and so Jesus is multidimensional. God is multidimensional. And then the last thing I would illustrate this with is we see it in how the Holy Spirit moves. You want to write the Holy Spirit in there? John 3, 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you don't know where the wind comes from or where it's going. Same way with the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is multidimensional can come and go as he pleases, in and out dimensionally, into time and space, and intersecting our world. Yeah, so you can't put the Holy Spirit in a box. You can't control him. He's like the wind. He comes where he wants to. He goes where he wants to. He comes from where he comes from, and that's that. And so we see a multidimensional God. And all of that means, and this is the, uh, just the last little point I want to make before we get into the, this outline, which is, therefore, we're never alone. You need the word never. Never alone. Think about that. God's in our past. He's in our present. He's in the future. He's here. He's there. He's in heaven. He's on earth. He's in the spirit world. He's in our natural world. He is in us. He's above us. He's around us. God is multidimensional. King David asked the question recorded in Psalm 139. He said, where can I go? Where can I go, O God, to escape from your presence? And, he, and so he goes through this list. Where could I go? Can I go to the heavens? No, you're there. Can I go to the earth? No, you're there. Can I go to the world of the dead? No, you're there. Maybe I could go as far as the east can go. You're still there. Go to the west. Fly there as far as you'll just take me. You're still there. Maybe if I hide myself in the darkness, that well, doesn't work any because he said even the darkness, you are the light in that place. So no matter where I am, God is there. And the good news in all of that is that Therefore, we are never alone. Isn't that comforting? No circumstance, no place, no, no deal, no part of your story that will keep you from the presence of God. I love that. Now, let's get real practical. Can we do this? Let's, let's just take these five points, and, and this is my invitation to you, my suggestion, that you take these five points and use it as your prayer list every day. Starting with number one, this is how you start the prayer, this is the next idea for prayer, the next dimension of prayer, and then you have a five-point prayer list. And this will be very practical and helpful, I hope. So here's number one, write this down. First of all, I look backwards to the cross. I look backwards to the cross. Yeah. Now what happens when I look backwards to the cross? I get thankful. I find that I am, that I am grateful for what Jesus has done for me on the cross. I'm filled with thanksgiving. Yeah, when I think about Jesus dying on the cross for me, it instantly reminds me of a few things. I put them right on your outline there. Number one, how deeply God loves me. Number two, how costly sin is. And number three, how completely I'm forgiven. Yeah, so how deeply God loves me, how serious is sin, and how completely I have been forgiven. First Peter 1, God paid a ransom to save you from an empty life. He paid for you with a precious life, bud of Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God? Yeah. Let me ask you a question. How do you know what something is worth? How do you know what something is worth? Here's the answer every time. Here's the answer. 
what someone's willing to pay for it. Whatever that thing is, you find the true worth, true value of that thing by what someone is willing to pay for it. My wife Beth has been selling residential real estate for many years, and she finds this all the time because people live in homes for a period of time, and those homes become sacred to them, and they become sentimental to them. And so when it comes time to sell the house, people often believe that their home is actually worth more than it is. But there's an easy way to find out because the market will determine what the value of your house is. It's what someone's willing to pay for. And so that, that's the true worth. Now let me ask you this question. What are you worth? What are you worth? Now the same rule applies to you. As, as it turns out, you are worth exactly what someone's willing to pay for you. Now I want you to think about Jesus. And I want you to think about the cross. And here's what we know about you and your worth. That God was willing to bankrupt heaven in order to purchase you, redeem you, to buy you back from the penalty of your sin. And so if God is willing to go to the extreme expense of offering the life of his very own son in order to purchase you, what is your worth? You're worth a lot. You are worth more than you have ever imagined. You're worth a lot. You're worth a lot. Yeah. So when you pray, when you pray, first thing you like to do is to look to see how much Jesus loves you and how much you've been forgiven. And it'll make you thankful. It'll make you grateful. And that's the right thing, isn't it? So here's my, my advice. Start your prayer every day with just saying thanks. God, I, I'm grateful to you for all you've done for me. It's a great place to start prayer. And it's not, just a, it's not just something you put on your prayer list, but I've discovered that you might want to have a playlist that goes with that and have a grouping of songs that you can select that reminds you of the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus and let the music of this message minister to your heart as well. Be thankful. Here's the second thing. You want to write this down. Second, then, look upward into the Father's loving face. Look upward. Let me just remind you now that when you're talking to God in prayer, you're not talking to a dictator or your boss or your supervisor or your coach. You're talking to your Father. Jesus, Jesus was asked by the disciples, you remember this from a few weeks ago, when the disciples turned to Jesus and said, please teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, okay, I'll teach you. Here's how you start. Our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven. So this is how you address God. Jesus taught us the preference that the Father has when we address him. And it's, address me as Father. Now, some of you will push back with that because you will say, my earthly father is not a good guy, and I have bad, I have bad thoughts bad connotation when I think about my earthly father. Well, let me just remind you, your earthly father is not your heavenly father. Your heavenly father is not your earthly father. Your earthly father may have been less than you needed, but your heavenly father, listen, is perfect. Your heavenly father is caring. He's close. He's considerate. He's consistent. He's capable. He is perfect. Your heavenly father is perfect. So you address him, my father. Yeah. Not Lord, or not, oh God, those are okay, but it's not his preference. His preference 
is that you address him as father. Remember, the way you see God will determine whether or not your prayers are fruitful and faithful. If, you're, if you understand God, you characterize God rightly, then your prayers will be more powerful, more passion-filled, and, and have purpose to them. If you misunderstand and misidentify who God is, then your prayers will be distorted as well. Direct correlation. Yeah. So not, oh God, not, oh Lord, not our creator, but rather, Father. Father. I mean, think about one of your own kids coming into, into the room. I imagine one of my sons walking in and said, oh, thou great leader and ruler almighty of our home, I have a request. I know what I would do. I said, look, uh, go back to bed. You're not right. And then, come back when, when you're normal. <laughs> and, so, and so this is the way God wants us to address him. Remember, you're not applying for a bank loan. You're not given a deposition to the FBI, you know, about Russian collusion or something like that. That's not what you're doing. Although they may come and talk to you. They're trying to find someone who colluded with the Russians. They haven't found anyone yet, and it may be you. So be ready for that deposition. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 7, it says, You should not act like a cowering, fearful slave, since God's Spirit has adopted you as children into God's family. You've been adopted as children into God's family. You are adopted as children into God's family, a child in the family, a child in the family. So address God as Father. Instead, by His Spirit, we simply cry out, Abba, Father. This is a term of endearment, term of intimacy. Abba means Daddy or Papa. And so, and so we address God as Father. Let me just illustrate this. For example, God wants my prayers to be personal. You need to write that down. It's one of those bullets that illustrate. Personal, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Papa, Daddy. So your, your prayers don't have to be flowery. They don't have to be beautiful. They don't have to be erudite, sophisticated, or cool. They merely need to be simple, childlike, unpretentious, sincere. This is what God expects. And so you address him as Father, remember, every misunderstanding of prayer is a misunderstanding of God. So you understand God well, your prayer will make sense. Now, here's my homework for you this week. I give you homework every week. Here's my homework. And I'm serious about this, very serious. I want you to start every day with your prayer praying, Oh, Daddy. Oh, Papa. Oh, Father, who's in heaven. Address him as Father, Papa, Daddy. Just ask us, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? God is your daddy. He's your father. Now, some of you right now, you're pushing back. You say, I just, well, listen, I can't do that, Pastor. I just don't feel comfortable calling God daddy. Well, listen, that's why you suck at prayer. Because you're mischaracterizing who God is. He's your father. He's your papa. And that's how he wants you to address him. So God, God wants you to be personal with him. Uh, another way that illustrates the other bullet there is God wants my prayers to be passionate. Passionate. Write down the word passionate. Cry out. When we pray, we cry out. Abba, Father. You know, put a little oomph into it. A little emotion, please. A little passion. Like you actually care about what you're doing. Why do you think you have emotions? You have them. Why do you have them? 
I'll tell you why you have emotions. Because you've been made in the image and likeness of God. And God has emotions. And he's created us in the same way. Let me just remind you, the Bible's clear about this. God emotes all the time. For example, God can get angry. He can be frustrated. He can get jealous. He can get impatient. He can be grieved. God has all kinds of emotions. And God also feels, God also feels our pain. God also uh, uh, empathizes with us in our, in, our, in our concerns and challenges. He loves. God's a very emotive God, and he wants us to care about what's going on in our lives when we pray. And just remember, some big stuff's going on. There are things we got to do. There are things we need to do. There's help we need. There are temptations that overwhelm us, and we need God's strength to overcome. There are bills to pay and decisions to make and all kinds of crossroadsy moments about career and spouses and children. Life is serious, and life is hard, and God's just inviting us to, to really care about calling on him in these times of need. Yeah, so be encouraged to emote that way. Here's the last thing that will illustrate this point, and that is God wants my prayers to be in partnership, partnership with his spirit. A couple of weeks ago, there's a talk show that is aired in the mornings on one of the networks, and it's a panel of women, mostly uh, liberal, progressive-thinking women, and one of those women uh, decided to critique the personal faith of our good friend and fellow Hoosier uh, and the Vice President of the United States, the Honorable Mike Pence. And she interpreted comments that our friend Mike Pence made with reference to his own personal faith that he actually prays and he talks to Jesus and sometimes Jesus talks to him. And this woman decided that any person who talks to God and then hears God speak back to them is a person who's hearing voices and therefore must be mentally ill. And so this person accused the Honorable Mike Pence of being crazy. Here's what Jesus had to say about that. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. Jesus said, I have some sheep. I'm the shepherd. I have some sheep. And they know my voice. And when they hear my voice, they follow me. Yeah. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're confused about this whole subject because you, you're wondering about this, well, why isn't she right? I mean, people hear voices. I mean, we get concerned about people like that. Let me just ask in the room present right now this question. How many of you present today have actually called out to God, prayed to God in a meaningful way to you, asking him a very important question about a process or a point or a decision in your life, and God, through various means, but surely as we're in the room right now, God actually answered your prayer, and you heard from God about what you were supposed to do. Raise your hand if that's happened to you. Look around. These are, the room is full of crazy people. We're all going nuts according to secular culture. But Jesus is the good shepherd, and his sheep know their voice, and they follow him. It's good preaching right there. Yeah. Okay, so here's step number one. We look back, and we're thankful. 
for what God's done for us. Number two, we look up into the loving face of our Father and we desire intimacy with God. And now here's number three. I look inward. I look inward to Jesus living inside of me. Now, here's the good news. When we say yes to Jesus and the invitation to receive his gift of eternal life, we pray a prayer, a heartfelt prayer, to ask Jesus to, to, to come into our life. What happens in a moment like that is God answers that prayer every time. And the Spirit of God will actually indwell us. The Bible teaches that we now become the containers, if you will, the vessels, if you will, the temples, if you, as another metaphor, of the Holy Spirit. So God indwells us. That's the promise. So God is in us. And that's all good. So when we, when we look inward to Jesus, we, we, we're talking to God who lives in us. Now, there's also another d dynamic that happens when we look inside, and that is we see other stuff in us that's not like Jesus. Jesus is in there, and then there's a bunch of other stuff in there. And these are the opportunities for us to become better people as God reveals to us some of those issues. For example, we all have bad attitudes, or we have secret sins, or we have some compulsions, or fears, or hurtful memories, or resentful thoughts, or unforgiveness, or bitterness toward other people. And these are things that are unlike Jesus, but are besetting sins in our lives. And so by looking inward, we are asking God to reveal to us some of those things that need to be healed, need to be forgiven, need to be removed from our lives so that we can improve and become better people. That's why 2 Corinthians 13 says, examine yourself to see if your faith is real and growing. Test yourself. Remember, Jesus is living in you unless you fail the test. Beth and I have been married over 40 years, and as we've rehearsed our marriage from time to time, uh, we're aware that there have been times or seasons in our marriage when we weren't particularly intimate. And in today's postmodern world and in the upside-down value system that per pervade, pervades our culture, uh, let me just say about intimacy that people don't have a clue what it means. People are running around desperate for it and don't have an idea about how to actually get it. One of the upside-down ideas in our culture today is that if you engage in sexual activity with someone, then you're intimate with them. And sex has very little to do with intimacy. And in some cases, nothing at all. It's just mingling bodies. The way you become intimate with someone is by intermingling your souls. So sex can become part, a component of intimacy, but... More, many times in our culture today, it has nothing to do with intimacy. So people just run around from partner to partner trying to figure out how to be intimate with people, and, and they never achieve it. So the question is, how can I learn to be more intimate in the meaningful relationships in my life? And the answer is, the best way to do that is to develop intimacy first with God. And as you pray to God, and you look inward, and you ask God to reveal to you the issues in your life that need to be healed or forgiven or, or, or restored, then you're developing an intimacy with God at the level of your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions. You're connecting with God. And you'll discover that God is a trustworthy place for these things and that, and that God will actually reach out to you in a meaningful, 
constructive, healthy way, and you'll begin to improve. And you'll develop intimacy, and now you'll have an experience and a model for what intimacy looks like so that you can begin to apply it in the other significant relationships in your life. So the first place to learn intimacy is in your relationship with God. And the better you are in relating in a vulnerable, honest, open way with God, the better you will be in the intimacy relationships with others. Yeah. So this is an important value that prayer offers to you when you look inward. Find Jesus there and then find the things in you that need to be improved. Yeah. Proverbs 28, 13 says, if you try to hide your sins, you'll never succeed. But if you humbly confess and reject them, you'll receive mercy. Isn't that encouraging? There it is. So be encouraged. Okay, now we're ready for number four. We look backward, we're grateful, we're thankful. We look inward for intimacy with God. We receive the Father's love. We look inward for improvement, where we confess our sins and ask for God's grace and help. Now here's number four. We look around and ask the Holy Spirit to use me. We look around and ask the Holy Spirit to use me. Now let me just tell you what the most dangerous prayer that you can possibly pray. This is the most dangerous. And I warn you ahead of time, if you're not sincere, do not pray this prayer. It's only two words. But it's very dangerous, very risky stuff. The two words that are most dangerous in prayer are, use me. Use me. <laughs> Let me tell you, if you pray sincerely before, and you say, oh God, use me. Let me tell you what's going to happen. I'll predict this with 100% accuracy. God will wear you out. He'll just wear you out. He'll wear you out. And the reason he'll wear you out is because the world is waiting. The world is waiting. It's a dangerous prayer. And so contrast that. Instead of criticizing the world or complaining about the world or judging the world or whining about the condition of the world, and for heaven's sake, spending so much time blogging about all the problems in the world. Start doing something to make it a better place. We have lots of critics. We have, we have lots of judges. We have lots of people who have a, an opinion about everything. I just got a reference from a colleague this past week. Go read this woman's blogs. You know, she makes a lot of sense. Okay, so I get on this woman's blog. This is what she had done the last six months. In her city, another city, she had been going to dozens of churches, mainline churches, independent churches, Christian churches, for worship on Sunday. And then people outside of the conventional Christian uh, circle, you know, some of the cultish churches like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, that sort of thing. And so she'd been to all these churches, and then she blogged after her experience in all of these dozens of different churches and critiqued every one of them. So, well, this is what was wrong with that deal. This is what was wrong with that teaching. That was wrong with this music. That's what's wrong with this culture. Wrong, 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 wrong. So she spends her life critiquing everybody else in their attempt to connect with God. Let me just say this. <laughs> it's amazing to me how, how much extra time some Christians have because it seems that they spend all this extra time challenging and criticizing and judging other Christians for the way they're trying to do it. 
I don't know where they come up with so much time. I say, I say this to Beth all the time. She's my witness with this. Yet you know, I see this phenomenon happening so much, and I just go, where do people have the time to actually do this? There are Christian leaders. They, they write books on why other Christians aren't, aren't doing it right. They spend enormous amounts of energy trying to correct everybody. <laughs> I, don't know where they, I don't know where they have the energy for that. I don't have time for that. Someone illustrated it this way. In my simple-mindedness, this helped me. He said, he said, now, imagine the Christian boat. It's the boat called Christian. And you're in the boat. And this boat has some oars. And you can sit down, and you can grab an oar, and you can start, you can start rowing. And he said this, if you're busy rowing the boat, you won't have time to rock the boat. If you're busy rowing the boat, you won't have time to rock the boat. And this plays out over and over again, and I've observed it for decades now, that the people who are most fussy in the church are the people who aren't doing anything, sitting around griping about stuff. Don't be one of those people. You don't want to be one of those people. Put your hands on something. And let me just add this caveat as well. I don't know who I'm talking to this weekend, but I've had this sense as I was preparing this message, and I think this will apply to someone. I don't know who I'm supposed to say this to, but somebody listening to the sound of my voice, listen to me, the world is waiting for your contribution. I, I don't know what it is, but we live in a world that desperately needs your help, and the world is waiting. The world's waiting. When you find a need and you have an interest, you've got an ability, you have some, some connection with that, you have some passion about that, listen, those things fit together, and you ought to put your hands on it and do it. One more caveat. By the way, uh, try, try to stop doing something that's really, really important, really, really great. So many times I've met Christians who say, you know, I, I believe God has something great for me. God's going to really use me someday. God's got a big plan for me. He's got a, an important assignment for me. And I, I'm being patient about that, but I know it's just over the horizon. God is going to give me something really significant to do. And let me just say to you, stop it. Stop trying to do something important. Stop trying to do something significant. Listen, put your hands on something, whether it's significant or not, and if you'll do it with the right heart and the right love and the right passion, God will make that thing a significant thing because you've brought everything you have to do the job. We were in a, we were in a volunteer meeting many years ago, lots of people in the room. We were talking about different needs in the church. You can volunteer to do this, this, and this. And one of the needs we had at the time was we need someone to empty the trash cans in the restrooms in between the services. Because the containers were filling up in between the services, we need someone to empty the trash cans in between services. That's the job description. Someone raised their hand. They said, well, what does it take to do that job? And you have to read between the lines. The between the lines was, <laughs> what, it, what they're asking is, when do I have to show up? How long do I have to be here? When can I leave? because um, the job's pretty straightforward, but the question was, what's that really going to cost me in terms of time and energy and all that? And so when the person asked the question, well, what does it take to do that job? This is how I answered. I said, it takes everything. It takes all you got. It takes all you have. It takes, it takes all, the, all that represents you being brought to that thing. And now it may be a relatively simple job, 
But if you're going to do it, it's going to take everything. And the reason it takes everything to do that job and any other job God calls you to is because Jesus is Lord and he's worth your full effort. And so, just do something and give it your best. And you might discover that the small thing you do turns into a big thing because it influences the people that you care for. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's good preaching. This is really good preaching. So good. I know good preaching when I hear it. It's good preaching. I know bad preaching when I hear it too. It's very sad. So look around and ask the Holy Spirit, what can I do? Here's the last thing, very briefly. Look forward into your future. Look forward. Use this as a prayer point. Every good parent, every good grandparent loves to hear their children talk about their dreams, talk about their hopes, talk about their ambitions, talk about their vision. And God loves to hear it too. Because you have dreams, don't you? I told you a couple of weeks ago, I've had two prayers I've been praying for 40 years. God still hasn't answered it. I bring it up. God, you know, in the future, I, I'm hoping to see this, hoping to see that. God loves to hear that stuff. So bring it to God, looking forward. So this is the prayer outline. You look backward and you're grateful. You look upward for connectivity and intimacy with God. You look in, inward because you want to confess your sins and improve as a person, get the help you need. Fourthly, you want to look around to see what needs you might meet. And then fifthly, you want to look forward because God has an expectant future for you and he wants to lead you into that purposeful life. Well, let's pause now and let's just pray about these things. You've got an outline for prayer and I hope that you'll use it. Now let's pray. I want to end the service today just by asking this question. Maybe, maybe you're a person in the room today and you've never opened your life to Jesus Christ. And let me just remind you, he loves you very much. You heard the testimonies and witnessed these candidates who submitted to water baptism today. They followed Jesus in obedience through water baptism. And maybe that was very meaningful to you, impressive to you. Let me remind you that Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for you. Maybe this is your day. This is your time. This is your moment right now. And you'd like to accept the love that God offers to you through Jesus Christ. Now listen, I, I want to give you some words to pray, but there's nothing special or magical about the words. But if you'll be sincere and believe them in your heart, God will always hear your prayer. So I'll offer the words and you pray them or some similar kinds of thoughts in your own heart and God will hear your prayer. Jesus Christ, I don't understand it all, but as much as I know, I surrender my life to you. Just say that in your heart. Jesus Christ, I don't understand it all, but as much as I know how, I surrender my life to you. I want to know the purpose you have for my life. I want to live the kind of life that you have made possible. I want my past to be forgiven. And I ask you to give me a purpose for living and a hope for heaven. That's my prayer. Thanks for hearing me. In your name I ask. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us?